the authority of Jesus, the affirmations of Jesus, the anguish of Jesus, the admonitions of Jesus, the abandonments of Jesus, and then the atonement of Jesus. These are the seven things that we're going to look at today, and you're going to be rejoicing already because I'm not going to do a whole lot of preaching. I'm just going to do a whole lot of scripture reading. Why not let the word of God preach itself? And so I'll add very little commentary in between, and I'm probably lying because I just can't stop talking. But I'm hoping just to read, just to identify these things and read these scriptures and let them, let the Holy Spirit do his ministry to you right through the scripture, and I'll make little comments on them and, and what have you. So we're going to examine each of those seven things via the scripture. And I, I think it would be befitting to pray one more time before we engage the word of God. Amen? Father, we come to you humbly now. We ask that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts with the truth. Lord, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, which we learned about earlier, we will not understand, we will not apply, we will not live out the truth. We are completely dependent upon him. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit at this very moment, and I believe he's been in this service with us since the beginning. Fill each one of us with the Holy Spirit, Lord. And those who have yet to come to know you, I pray that you would minister to them, Holy Spirit. Make our ears hear, our eyes see, our hearts understand the truth. What an important week, historical week, Passion Week was and is for us today, how relevant it is today. Lord, may we come to know you in a deeper way. And we love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Number one, the arrival of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus, and that's pretty much what we focus on on Palm Sunday. We focus on the arrival of Jesus and I'd like to uh, read a passage to you that, uh, and, 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 and know this, there are many other passages that I will not go to today that say these same things. Because of time, I've had to be selective. Um, but there are far more, there's, you know, there's accounts of this particular entry into Jerusalem beyond Matthew 21 Verses 1 to 11, which is where we'll be just for a moment. So you might even want to turn there. And I'm totally fine with you turning to each passage, or you can just hear me read it or whatever, whatever's easiest for you. Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Uh, and I think that uh, I might have taught on this one at, at a past Palm Sunday, I'm not sure. But when I read it again, it seemed so very familiar. 21, 1 to 11. This just sort of encompasses his entry into Jerusalem. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came from Bethphage, sounds French, it's not, Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a burst of uh, burst, a beast of burden. Now, doesn't that sound familiar, that Zechariah passage we read? Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They went and obeyed and went and got this donkey. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, uh, on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that had followed him were shouting, Hosanna uh, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so this would be the starting point of the Passion Week, that the Lord, you know, was bringing his ministry to a close and that he, you know, he, gets a, he has his guys go get a donkey and he rides the donkey and he's hailed as a king. They're shouting to him, Hosanna, which basically means save us now. They had some idea that he was the Messiah. They thought of him as the Messiah in a sense and they wanted to be delivered out from under Roman oppression and these things. And so they're shouting and you have sort of a celebratory thing playing out here. Of course, he's very humble on the back of a donkey, not much of an entrance for a king. In, in, in our sense of, you know, not a lot of glory in these sorts of things, but he is a king, no doubt. He comes in, and then, and this is really, like I said, this is the starting point for the whole week. This is the launch point for where we're going. First thing he does is he comes into town. Comes into town, he enters the city. And, and from that moment, many things are said and done. And that's where we'll turn our focus to now. Number two would be the authority of Jesus. You know, as he came into town, he began to exercise his authority and communicate his authority. He did that throughout the whole week. One of the first things that we see in that same passage in verses 12 to 13 of Matthew is Jesus showed his authority over his house, which would be the temple. Okay? Matthew 21, 12 to 13, and Jesus entered the temple, okay, he did this right after he came in or maybe the next morning, but close relationship to him entering. One of the first things he did, and keep in mind that he had been in the temple throughout his whole ministry, teaching and preaching and doing these things, well, when he comes into town, he goes back into the temple and he begins to show his authority over the temple, over his house, and he, and he entered the temple and drove out all who sold and brought, uh, bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house. He says, my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. They basically taken the temple and turned it into a strip mall where they were buying and selling and exchanging money. And basically they were ripping off all the pilgrims that had come into town. First thing Jesus does is he comes in and he exercises his authority. He clears the place out. He drives out all the business. Imagine going into a local strip mall or an outlet center and just driving all the people out. Of course, that's not the temple, and I have no idea why I just said that. But this was a dramatic scene. 
And so the first thing he does is he comes in and he begins to exercise his authority and he does that over his house. He comes into the temple of God. That would be that meeting place, the place of the fathers, of God's uh, meeting on earth, the place that represents where his presence is. And he comes in and he's discouraged and he's upset because it's a strip mall and he comes in and he clears it out. He says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. He also, the authority of Jesus is also seen in how he exercised his authority over disability, sickness, and disease. That week he did that. And as he was coming and going from Bethany, Matthew 21, 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. You see, when he came into the temple and cleared it out and restored it as the house of God, that proper place of worship and adoration and respect to God, people started coming to him in droves with, you know, their relatives that had ailments and sicknesses and illnesses and, 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 and couldn't walk and couldn't speak and couldn't see, whatever these things were. And what does he do? He exercises divine authority and the divine imper imperative to heal. And this is a trademark of his ministry from day one. He was healing and doing miracles and these things. See, Jesus has authority over his house, and, and, and Jesus has authority over physicalities, over disabilities and sickness and disease in these things, and we see that so clearly during the Passion Week. And, and another thing that we see is the authority of Jesus over the salvation of his people. You don't have sovereignty over your salvation. It was given to you as a gift by a sovereign king, and it's irremovable. And we see him teach and show that he has authority over the salvation of his people in his high priestly prayer, which took place a little bit later in the week. John 17, verses 1 to 2. And here's an interesting thing for you, an interesting piece of fact Jesus did so much this week and said so much this week that we're all familiar with the Gospel of John. How many chapters does it have? 21? Eight of them have to do with this Passion Week. Did you know that? From chapter 12 all the way up to chapter 21, it's all about his final week. Almost one half of John's Gospel has to do with his final week. Now that'll tell you something, doesn't it? I bet you didn't know that. That's insane. That's how busy this week was. And, and one of my favorite passages, and one of the things that he taught is that high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, as he's praying before his betrayal and, and these things, and on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, if you will, he, he prayed and showed that he has authority over the salvation of his people. John 17, 1-2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. Basically what he's saying is you have given me authority over all flesh, but more particularly over the salvation of those whom you have promised to me and given me. Who's sovereign over our salvation? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an encouraging thing. 
Jesus has authority over his house. And if you love Jesus and you are a follower of Jesus, your body is his temple. He has authority over you. He is your Lord. Jesus has authority over disabilities and sickness and disease and much more than that. But we see him healing and doing all these things. He has authority over the salvation of his people. That right belongs to him. No one can take it. It was granted to him by the Father. There's the covenant of salvation that was worked out in advance between him and the Father. It's a mystery. It's crazy. It's true. He's sovereign over your salvation and over the salvation of every person who will be called unto salvation. Not one will be lost. Amazing. And guess what Jesus has authority over as well, and we see this from the Passion Week, over the devil. Well, the devil's just running crazy, and he's the ruler of this earth, and he's doing all these things. Let me tell you something right now, friends. Not one thing happens without the express permission of Jesus Christ to that dirty devil. He allows him to do what he does. He grants it so that he can work all things to his glory and purpose. I don't get it. That sounds crazy. But Jesus is over the devil. The devil isn't an equal to him. The devil doesn't have authority over him. He is under the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ has authority over all flesh, over all of creation. Read in Colossians. He has authority over the devil. John 12, 31. Now the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out, is what Jesus said. During his Passion Week, Jesus said, his rule and reign here in some sense and the terror over death and over sinners and these things, it's coming to an end. He's going to be cast off of his little milk carton throne. I have authority over him. I'm going to defeat him is what Jesus said during the Passion Week. Jesus also, the authority of Jesus as the final judge. This is something else that he taught during this week. He has authority as the final judge between men and God. He is the Savior, but he's also the judge. And people reject Jesus today, and they think they're just rejecting some potential Messiah, if you will, but they're also going to be judged by that same one that they are rejecting and have rejected. He is their judge. Matthew 25, 31 to 32, when the Son of Man comes in his Glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And if you keep going down there, he talks about these ones receiving punishment, these ones receiving glory. This is what he said between Sunday and Friday. He is the judge. He is the final arbiter. He is the final judge over his creation and over the hearts of men. It's interesting, huh, that these things were said and, and done during this week. So much more, too. Number three, the affirmations of Jesus. These would be things that he declared about himself. 
self-affirmation. And there's no one better to be affirmed by than God Almighty. And when Jesus said something about himself, that was God saying it and affirming it. The affirmations of Jesus, things that he declared about himself, Jesus affirmed himself as the Son of Man during this week. The Son of Man is a messianic title that we see in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. As the Son of Man. You know, Jesus, that was his favorite title for himself. And it encapsulated his humanity. Because he was fully human. Matthew 26, 45. Then he, Jesus, came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Speaking of himself. Identified himself during this week in several other places and throughout his ministry, a multitude of places. He is the Son of Man, a messianic title for himself. He also, over in 2664, Jesus said to the high priest, From now on you will see the Son of Man, again, before his crucifixion, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven, is what Jesus told the high priest as they were entering in their verdict against him. Oh, you might see me now as a, a beaten down poor man prophet from Nazareth, a nothing to you, but believe me, high priest, there's coming a day when you will see me in all my raging glory. Amen to that. The Son of Man... Jesus affirmed himself as the son of God. He's son of man, humanity, son of God, divinity. Jesus affirmed himself as the son of God. Luke 22, 66 through 71. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? Is that what you're saying to us? And he said to them, you say that I am. Basically, yes. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from ourself, for ourselves from his own lips. Jesus affirmed himself as the Son of Man during the Passion Week. Jesus affirmed himself as the Son of God. Jesus also affirmed himself as God incarnate, as divine. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't that what Son of God means? Yes, that's what it means according to Scripture, but in today's world with people believing in different sorts of religions and Mormonism, Mormonism teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not divine. I don't know how that works out. I just don't, I don't understand how you arrive at that. How can he be the son of God and not divine? Well, they've got a whole doctrine and theology that, that somehow describes away the truth of scripture. And so it's imperative that we know that Jesus was not only the son of God, but that he was also divine. And that's what son of God actually means. But Jesus actually infirmed him, affirmed himself as God incarnate. As divine, John 17, 21. I pray that they, and he's speaking of the church, will be one. Just as you and I, he's praying to God, he's talking to the Father. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Inseparable divinity. Uh, divinity. Jesus, 
not just the Son of God, but also incarnate God together. God as the Son of God in a divine way. Now, it's sad and tragic that other Christian-esque religions out there get this wrong. He was fully divine, and he affirmed that during the Passion Week. And if you think about it, he comes into town, the triumphal entry, and he's welcomed as a king. As he's teaching these things and saying these things and doing these things, people are getting ticked at him. Because he's beginning to show, for whatever reason, God is allowing them to see him as he truly is. Jesus is proclaiming these things about himself, and the crowds are not thinking that this is like the king of David. This is a, an imposter, because there's no way he could be divine. There's no way that he could be. Jesus affirmed during this week his purpose, why he'd come. Makes sense the last week of your life in ministry that you would make sure to tell people again what you've been doing through his whole ministry, why he came. He affirmed his purpose, Matthew 26, 1. When Jesus had finished uh, all these sayings, he said, to the, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. What's Jesus saying? I came to die. I came to die. I came to make the atonement. I came to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and to be nailed to a cross to die. Now, his disciples didn't get this at this point. But he affirmed his purpose. I was born to die. I came for this purpose. And even a greater expression of this is in John 12, 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? This is the Lord speaking. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, 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 no. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. To do what? To be betrayed into the hands of sinners. To die on a cross. To be resurrected. Buried, resurrected. You see, Jesus, during that last week and throughout his whole ministry, he affirmed why he had come. He even told Pontius Pilate, I came to testify to the truth. I'm the truth. Jesus affirmed his purpose. These are the affirmations of Jesus. How about the anguish of Jesus, which we see so clearly during this week? The anguish of Jesus. Jesus, couple examples, Jesus anguished over Jerusalem right before his triumphal entry. Right before Palm Sunday, if you will. Actually, on Palm Sunday, on his way into town via donkey back, he is lamenting over the city. Luke 19, 44 through, uh, 41 through 44. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's saying basically in advance as he's coming into Jerusalem to do his last week of life and ministry here, to wrap this thing up, you're going to forsake, you've forsaken me, you're not going to believe in me, city of Jerusalem. And because of that, you're going to be judged. This city will be destroyed. And Jesus didn't say this trivial, in a trivial way. He didn't say this off the cuff. He wept as he approached the city. He was in anguish over their rejection of him and the judgment that they would receive because of this. And we're talking about the nation of Israel, the covenantal people of God. 
Don't get me wrong, there's a remnant in there. There's faithful people in there. But for the most part, Jesus also anguished over Jerusalem a second time during that week. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who, who are sent to it. Long history of just annihilating their prophets. They came and spoke truth to them, trying to save their lives. Killed them. He knows this. He says this to them. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing, Jerusalem. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Twice during that week he wept over Israel because of the people's rejection of him that he could see in advance. Jesus anguished while in the garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 32 to 34, and... They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus was filled with anguish the night of his arrest and betrayal, facing the justice and wrath, the cup of God's wrath and justice. He anguished during this week. How about the admonitions of Jesus? This would be the corrective teachings and warnings. Plenty of those going on during the Passion Week. More particularly between Sunday and Friday. Jesus reiterated the cost of following him. This is something that he taught during that week. If you're going to be my follower, X, Y, and Z. Not easy. John 12, 25 to 26, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. What he's saying is, is that it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's a costly thing to follow me. If you love your life, you're really going to lose it. But if you forsake your life for my sake, you gain eternal life, the best life which has implications for today. An abundant life in this life now as you physically go to and fro and live. It's not just an eternal blessing, it's life now with the master. And what he's saying is, is that if you follow me, that life has to go and you have to take up this life, the life that I offer and give. Now he did this throughout his ministry. In fact, whenever he taught the difficulties of or the cost of discipleship, many people would leave him because they were lukewarmers, or they were like, I'm not going to be committed like that. I'm not going to carry a cross every day. That's, that's, for, that's for yahoos that would die that kind of death. I'm not going to carry a cross. You're going to carry a cross? What are you talking about? Jesus reiterated the cost of following him. Jesus warned about the future destruction of the temple. We see this in Matthew 24, 1-2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when the disciples came to point out uh, point to him, the buildings of the temple, you know, they were just astonished at the beauty of this place with all the gold and jewels and the walls and these things and the fine fabrics. And he said this to them as they're going, man, this is the nicest building I've ever been in. He said this, you see all these things, do you not? 
Truly I say to you, truly important thing he's about to say, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What did he just say? This place is, you guys say this place is beautiful. Guess what? It's going to be completely destroyed. 70 AD that happened. Jesus informed his disciples about false teachers in the end times and even about his second coming, that he would return. Matthew 24, 4 to 8, Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray. Be careful of those false teachers. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. He's talking about his second coming, but he's talking about others coming in and and trying to lead people astray. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but of the beginning of the birth pains, is what he said. You skip on down to 24 Uh, 29, and Jesus talks about his return after this tribulation period. I think it's wonderful that Jesus is on his way out at this stage, but he's talking about when he's coming back. Because the disciples were about to lose him. Betrayal and these things. But he warned about false teachers. He warned about these things. He admonished them, be careful. Lots of guys are going to come along and say they're me. They'll dazzle you with stuff. They're not me. Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees for being religious hypocrites. Do you know he did that during between Sunday and Friday before the cross? That he rebuked the highest religious leaders in the community, in the town, in the nation, the highest of the highest of the highest, the Pope and his guys, if you will. He rebuked them for being religious hypocrites. Matthew 23, 13 to 31. I skipped verses for time. I'll read a little bit of it to you. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, explanation point. He does this seven times, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that's convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He said this to the religious leaders. Everyone you convert is just is twice as son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple he is bound by an oath. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let me tell you something right now. You just read all the way through Matthew 23 and you read these seven woes and all their little details and all the little dynamics of it and you will get a strong sense that the thing that God is most opposed to in his creation is religious hypocrisy. And a lot of guys say, well, this passage is about you, Pastor Phil. Not, they're not saying I'm a hypocrite, but they're saying it's about the teachers of the law and those who proclaim the gospel. It's about those, not us regular Christians. Bull. It's about religious hypocrisy. It's about saying you're following Jesus and loving Jesus while on the inside not believing that and not living that out and and just playing church and just playing religion and going along and going through the motions and doing all the little religious things while yet your heart is far from God. You see the hypocrisy? I say I believe, but it's not here. And the scribes and Pharisees were terribly hypocritical 
while laying endless burdens on, religious burdens on the people while being dead on the inside. Now it is an explicit warning towards those who preach the gospel to be authentic and real. And we have a lot of charlatans in the church today. There are. But it's not just for preachers and pastors and elders and deacons. It's for every person who claims the name of Jesus Christ. Religious hypocrisy is a, is a, a thing that the Lord does not take lightly. And what about the abandonments of Jesus? We talked about the admonitions of Jesus, these warnings and harsh teachings and, and corrective things. What about the abandonments of Jesus? Jesus was abandoned on the night of his arrest. You know that? Before the cross. Before the trial. He was abandoned on the night of his arrest. Mark 14, 43 to 50. And immediately while he was speaking, he was still speaking... Judas came, one of the twelve, you know, the betrayer, son of perdition, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, speaking of Jesus, and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and you know, went commando Rambo style, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. It was Simon Peter that did that. Jesus said to him, have you come out as against a robber? He says this to the multitude that came to him with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Why now is what Jesus says. But let the scriptures be fulfilled in that last little verse, 50. And they all left him and fled. Well, guess who didn't leave? The mixed multitude that came to arrest him. His disciples abandoned him out of fear. The one who struck Malchus and cut his ear off all of a sudden turned into Bruce Jenner and took off and ran through the orchard. And so did everyone else. He was abandoned on the night of his arrest. Have you ever been abandoned by your friends and family? I remember when I was in junior high, my dad left felt abandoned by him. We were, in a sense. And, and here, and here, you can see that Jesus suffered abandonment. Jesus was abandoned also at the cross. He was abandoned at the cross. Isaiah 53, 3, a nice prophetic passage about what would take place at the cross. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, some of these things took place during his ministry as men just took off from him and despised him, but at the cross it really happened. When every ounce of dignity was taken from the Lord, he was stripped naked and beaten profusely and nailed to this cross, men turned their faces from him and despised him. And that's exactly what they did to criminals that were treated that way. This was the worst possible way to treat a criminal. To strip them naked and crucify them. And the king of kings, lord of lords, was abandoned right there by all. There was a handful of people that stood by him. 
but for the most part, he was despised and rejected. He was abandoned. Matthew 27, 46, and at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He is now nailed to the cross, and he is about to give up his spirit. And he said this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For a moment, the father turned his face from his son when he became sin, our sin. Human abandonment, abandonment by his closest confidants in the garden, abandonment by the nation and everyone else pretty much at the cross, abandonment by the father for a moment at the cross. I think that Jesus at that particular moment was the loneliest person in history. Why? Because of your sin. Because of my sin. And the atonement of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, crucifixion and death, Matthew 27, 35, and then 45 to 50. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the, all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again and again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is that moment where Jesus Christ made an atonement for his people. And I want to talk about that in some detail and what was accomplished at this moment on the cross. And I know we're going to skip over and talk about these things again on Friday, on Good Friday. But this is something that took place again between Sunday and Friday, which is what we've been focused on this morning. Thinking in terms of the atonement that Jesus made. At the cross, Jesus, in the atonement, at the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place, in the place of sinners, in the place of his people. You see, God, the flames of God's wrath are stoked against sinners. We're all rebels. We've all rebelled against the Father. We've all gone astray, all sheep. We're all like sheep that have gone astray. No one is righteous, not one. We're all sinners. We've inherited that from Adam, and you know darn well you're a sinner too. Just think back on your last week, the things that you've said and done and thought. God's wrath is stoked against sinners. Yeah, God is love, but God is also just. And he is a wrathful God. He is a jealous God. He's pretty serious. And no sinner, like you or I, can do what it takes to satisfy his wrath. Someone had to die vicariously in our place to be able to do that. 
Someone had to be able to offer up their life, and it had to be a life that's infinitely valuable. My life is not infinitely valuable. It has some value. At least in my own mind it does. But to God, for me to sacrifice myself would pay no dividend whatsoever. Not for me or for anyone else. At the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place. He died vicariously in our place. Isaiah 53, 5, 6 and 53, 12. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep, I said this, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What's the translation of this in, in, in practical terms? He satisfied the wrath. He suffered the death that we should suffer. At the cross, Jesus redeemed us with his blood and forgave our sins. This also took place between Sunday and Friday, more particularly at the cross. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through what? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. What's a trespass? It's sin. It's your sins. According to the riches of God's grace. At the cross, Jesus died a bloody death. He bled out. His blood poured out. It mixed with water. It poured out on the ground. And in that spilling of the blood and in that precious blood of Jesus, there is redemption. There is forgiveness of sins. God becomes satisfied by that spilt blood of the Lamb of God. He was perfect. He was perfectly righteous and holy. Without spot or blemish. He paid the price. He redeemed us with his blood and forgave our sins. It's part of the atonement. It's what took place at the cross. Another wonderful thing that took place in the atonement. At the cross, Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. You see, only Jesus was perfectly righteous. He'd never breached any of God's laws. He obeyed perfectly. Why? Because he was God. Because he was a perfect man. Think of Adam before the fall in a sense. He endured temptation and, and went through those things as we do. But he never sinned. And he obeyed God's law perfectly. Which means that he merited or earned a perfect righteous standing. Which is what the once and for all Messiah and sacrifice was required to do. And he had this perfect righteousness about him. And yet we, on this end, are unrighteous and are sinful and wicked beings. And all the, the good things that we try to do and, and try, to, try to please God or some cosmic force and all these things that we do apart from faith are nothing more than filthy rags, is what it says in Isaiah. Just dirty rags before God. You see, we 
needed not only to have the wrath of God satisfied, not only to be redeemed by, by his blood and forgiven through his blood, but we need righteousness. You know, the cross, in a sense, just being forgiven isn't enough. We need a righteousness applied to us is what we need. We have to have that righteousness applied. Jesus said this, no one will see the kingdom without a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Not that they were earning it, but they need a righteousness that is foreign and beyond them. You need the righteousness that I provide is what he taught. What I can provide. See, it's one thing to have your sins covered and removed, but that's not enough. Now you're a blank canvas. You need the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, given to you, put in your account. You cannot see God you will not inherit heaven without his imputed righteousness. And this is something that took place at the cross. Cor uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 2, or no, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, pardon me. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the exchange. Took my sin, put it on Jesus, took Jesus' righteousness, put it on me. Wow. But I keep sinning. Guess what? I certainly don't rejoice in that. I don't use God's grace and the righteousness that's been imputed as a, as a license to continue to sin. The disposition of a true Christian is that you hate sin. And I hate my sin. Do you hate yours? But even when I sin, it does not take and remove that righteousness. It doesn't cloud it. It doesn't stain it. It doesn't dirty it. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Period. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus did not know sin. He took that sin of yours and applied it to him. And then he gave us the righteousness that we would become the righteousness of God. Each Christian. Amazing. Also, at the cross, Jesus, Jesus reconciled us to God. We needed to be reconciled. We didn't have a right relationship with God. We're under his wrath because we're rebels. And so we needed to have a relationship with God. We needed a restored relationship like pre-fall. You know, before the fall, there was this wonderful harmony and relationship and love relationship with the Father between Adam and Eve. And after the fall, that was dashed to pieces. Well, God was good and showed them grace and mercy. But we need to be reconciled to God. Don't, 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 don't think that because God is love, that, that, that just because he's a loving God and that he is love in and of itself, that he's not at odds with people who haven't repented of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. They are his enemies. And their relationship with him is torn. It's destroyed. It's a, you're like a red, you're on a rebel force against the father of all creation. He created man for his own glory. And look at what man has done. Man lives for his glory. He is a rebel. And so at the cross, Jesus reconciles sinners like us to God. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. This is something else that's packed into the atonement. Reconciliation. To be in right standing in relationship with God is a marvelous thing, friends. There's no relationship that will satisfy you like that which the Father offers and gives. 
Only He can provide that sense of security that's lasting and a sense of, of purpose and give you an identity that was wrought in Christ at the cross. You know why the world is filled with so much despair? Because people do not, or they're not in right standing with their creator. Why do people do what they do? Why do we sinners do what we do? Man, this relationally has to be reconciled. Once brought back under the fold of God in right relationship with him, all of life changes. One person at a time. At the cross, in the atonement again on that Friday, at the cross, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13. You know, we're talking about the Decalogue here. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. Every one of us has breached a commandment or two or six or ten. Let's just be candid and open and honest. We're all lawbreakers. Even as saved Christians, we break God's laws from time to time. And with that breach of God's law comes a curse. The curse of death and hell. And yet Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law at the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why or how? By becoming a curse for us. Right there at the cross, he became literally in a sense the curse. That you would no longer be cursed by your breachments of God's holy law. At the cross, Jesus redeemed us from the guilt of our sin. He redeemed us from the guilt of our sin. You do realize why we do what we do. We sin and, and we try to cover it up and we try to make it look not so bad or we add more sin try to make us feel better about ourselves. But the whole point and the whole time, all we're trying to do is mask the guilt. All we're trying to do is hide how we truly feel inside. This is precisely why people are at the state capitol constantly advocating for laws to be passed to protect their rights to live crazy, sexually immoral lives. It's all guilt, friends. You must know this. It is guilt that drives sin, more sin. And, and it is guilt that is produced through sin. Guilt. Shame. Yet at the cross in the atonement, Jesus redeemed us from the guilt of our sin. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, once you're justified before God, you don't have to live in the guilt of your sin. You've been made right with him. That's what justified means. You have a right standing with him. So even as a believer, as you sin and wrestle with sin and war against sin, there is no condemnation for you, for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. You are justified before God. You don't have to live with the guilt of your sin, although you do need to live a confessional, repentant life. But what we do is never to be driven by guilt but by a sincere desire to please God with the whole of our life. To rest in his grace. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation 
no reason for you, if you're in Christ, to travel through life riddled with the guilt of your sin. Jesus paid the price and grants to you peace with God the Father. He has justified you. You don't have to walk in shame and guilt. Lastly, at the cross, Jesus redeemed us from the power of sin. He redeemed us from the power of sin. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. What futile ways would these be? What did I inherit from my dad and every other baker who's come down the pike? Sin. Dysfunction. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, not with something that would perish, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Because of Jesus' righteousness and the sacrifice that he made, he has given us through that He has redeemed us from the power of sin that we do not have to live under sin any longer by faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle with sin, but you don't have to be dominated by its power and influence. All of the cross-centered things I've mentioned had to do with the atonement of Jesus Christ. They are all part of the gospel. And the gospel is so much more vast than this. The angels never tire, it says in 1 Peter or 2 Peter. Don't quote me on it, but I know it's in 1 or 2 Peter. The angels never tire of looking in to the mysterious gospel of Jesus Christ. Angels are higher than us, and yet they look at what Christ has done in his atonement, and they say, whoa, never get tired of trying to figure that thing out. All these things that I've mentioned are part of the gospel, but there's one thing that is missing. The Apostle Paul said that this one thing is vital to our salvation. In fact, without it, no one can be saved. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in a week on Easter Sunday. Make sure you come back this Friday at 6.30 for our Good Friday service. I'd like to uh, call for Aaron to come forward. He's going to lead us in song before we take communion. And as he comes up and readies himself, I'd like for you just to continue to listen to me just for a moment. And I wanted to invite Trish too. <laughs> now, aren't you somewhat amazed by some of the things that we've that that have been presented to you that Christ did these things during that week as I told you he did and said much more these are just what I would consider maybe seven of the most important things all these things in a six day period now I was thinking about by my my six day week I don't do jack (laughs) I mean I do some things but wow Lord You didn't accomplish these things and said these things during this week. How marvelous you are. Isn't Jesus incredible?
is. And he's completely worthy of our praise. Aren't you glad God sent him? Aren't you glad that Jesus died on the cross for you? I hope you believe in him this morning. You need him just as I need him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Believe that he lived. Believe that he died. Believe that he was buried. Believe that he rose from the grave doing all these things for you. Turn away from your, your self, your self-efforts. Turn away from whatever religion you're currently following. Believe in Jesus for your eternal salvation. And the Bible says, if you do so, ye shall be saved. Do you believe in him this morning? I hope so. Let's spend a little more time worshiping the Lord.